0: Welcome to CPP Chat, a sometimes weekly, sometimes monthly look at what's going on in the world of C++, chatting with guests from the community. But an immutable part of this introduction is John's persistent disclaimer.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Phil. I think this is very important that everyone know this, the information provided by Functional Remedies we, us, or our, on the site is for general information purposes only. All information on the site is provided in good faith. However, we make no representation or warranty of any kind expressed or implied regarding the accuracy, adequacy, validity, reliability, availability, or completeness of any information on this site. So, I want everybody to know that. Ah, uh, we have uh, a guest with us today, uh, Juan Pei, who has... Who has spoken a number of times at CPPCon, but he's broken my heart by saying he's not planning to come this year.
2: Yeah, I'm very sorry about that. Oh no. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, we'll miss you. Yeah. Um, Next year. But uh, but tell us uh, tell us what you've been uh, uh, been interested in recently. And uh, you said you had an idea maybe for meeting C plus uh, plus. Yeah.
2: So um, actually, like the topic that has like preoccupied me the most over the last few years, and actually it's been like most of my recurrent uh, topics I've got also to CPPCon, is somehow value semantics or how to make value semantics a scale at various level, uh, promoting this thing that now Tony Van Earth and me are trying to push into people, which is value-oriented design. And um, yeah, so now there is some work I'm doing in... Basically, some open source libraries to support this value oriented design that I will hope to have fleshed out and be ready to show by the end of the year.
1: Yeah. Okay. So this is this is kind of in the path of some of the talks that you've given at CPPCon,
2: right? Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So I think um, at CPPCon so two years ago, I talked about immutable data structures. Um, which was uh, a little so bit... So let's like,
1: dive into that, because that yeah. sounds just almost like a contradiction in turn. Not quite a contradiction, <laughs> but it's like, wait a minute. I, I'm storing data there, but if I store it, I can't change it? That doesn't seem right. Yeah, right. So explain what's the purpose of it first, and then we can talk about how
2: those things work. Yeah, exactly. So when, when we talk about immutability, right, it doesn't mean that you're refusing change. It means that change has to be somehow explicit and represented by different values, right? So uh, when we say that it's immutable, it's the object is immutable. So the data structure object is immutable, but you can say, I add something to a vector or a map, and then you get a new version of the container with the new data in it. Right, right. So, it's, um, so there is change in this sense, but this change is reflected as a new value instead of manipulating the previous object in memory.
1: So it's a functional way of looking at, at data stores.
2: Exactly. So th- this basically comes from functional programming. Um, even though, yeah, I've been trying not to refer to functional programming that much in my work lately, even though it's obviously inspired by functional programming. Yeah, and that's where, where it's coming from.
1: Yeah. Yvonne also seems to be running away from this term. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so what's the point? What is the advantage of having a data structure that uh, where every change to the data structure is essentially a new value for the data structure? Is that what you're
2: saying? Yeah. Um, so there are two major advantages that come to mind like, quickly. Like The first one is obviously for concurrency. Uh Because, basically, uh, you know there is, when you're talking about concurrency, that is the hell corner, if you make like this diagram, of state, mutable state, shared state, local state, non-local and not immutable, whatever. Um, And that is the hell's corner, which is basically shared mutable state, right? Um, So, normally, we avoid this by either, well, having state local, but that stops you from communicating right or by you know adding complicated synchronization mechanisms which we all love yeah which we all do right but basically if you make things immutable then you can share them safely between threads uh, there's no race condition if you remove you know mutability from the equation right mm-hmm. uh so so yeah this enables f- Completely new patterns of doing like concurrent programs where you basically share uh, basically you share by communicating instead of communicating through sharing. I think that, words, that word actually comes from the Go community, which is not particularly functional, but uh, you know it's basically this idea of using message passing um, as a mechanism you know to communicate between concurrent entities instead of you know using mutexes and banging on shared memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and now these messages, you know, if they're going to be big and whatnot, you need a special data structures to avoid too much copying. Mm-hmm. And that's where these data structures com- come in play. Then the second advantage is um, that uh, it's what I would call its value semantics, enabling value semantics at scale. Um Because I think one of the major problems that people face when trying to apply value semantics in the traditional, you know, C++ value semantic way, right, having value types, Um, at sufficiently large scale is that, well, value semantics are normally tied in C++ to deep copying, right? Uh, And as soon as you do, you know, if you have, like, lots of data, then doing these deep copies, it's very expensive, and you end up basically dropping value semantics out of the question just because it's not performant enough, um if you make things immutable, you don't really need to do a deep copy to get a logical copy of the object, right? So you can actually, from the outside these data structures, they... It looks like, you know, you pass them by value and that you get a a full copy. But internally, you're not really getting a copy. You're just copying a pointer to the internal representation. And and the same things happen, actually, with these manipulation operations that I was mentioning before, right? So when you push something into a vector, uh, you don't copy the whole vector uh, to get this new manipulated version. You copy only a chunk of it. So... As you create these new versions of the data, right, as you uh, evolve the data structure, you're always keeping the history there if you want. Uh, but this history is somewhat compact because there is this property that is called a structural sharing, which means that the different versions of the data structure that come from a common root actually share a structure internally. Okay, so... Right, and, and this is enabled by this immutability, right? It's only like, you don't see, um, like from the outside, you, you don't see, you know, this, right? Like from the outside, it's all like independent values, etc. cetera. Yeah.
1: So let me see that I understand. Yeah. And we'll, we'll ignore how the magic happens, but for right now, let's assume...
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: I'm running on a thread... Yeah. I communicate with you on another thread, I want to give you a bunch of data. So I give you an entire data structure worth of data. Yeah, and that's, and that's safe without locking, because what I'm really giving you, some magic is happening, but I'm really giving you a snapshot of a storage. Exactly. So that after I give it to you, I can continue to add more and more data to it. Exactly. And then push it to you again. And this never requires locking because you don't see the things that I add, because what you got the first time is some kind of pointer into some data structure that is stable and never mutates. But I can mutate it. But when I do mutate it, I'm not changing what you see until I push it to you again and say, no, 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 here's the new data structure. Is that how it works? That's exactly
2: how it works. Yeah. So, all right. Now tell me how that magic happens. So so, yeah, it's this ability to get like snapshots for free, right? Um, Yeah. So So now how do you do that magic? How do you do that magic? Well, basically, um, I I was giving some hint before, right, with this structural sharing. So um, the data structure is obviously not going to be completely flat, like... uh, It's not going to be a single buffer like a vector. Exactly, right? Because if you have a single buffer, right, as soon as you create a new version of the buffer... Uh, I mean, if you want to change the buffer, yeah, either you manipulate it in place, which is what we don't want to do. And if you want to have a new version of it, then you have to copy the whole buffer, right? To be be able to keep it flat. Um, But if you have something that is a little bit like a tree structure, then uh, you can copy part of the data, right? The part of the tree where the manipulation is happening, but then keep pointers to the rest of the tree as it was before. Okay. Um, So, yeah, these data structures, even though sometimes they, uh, they use names like vectors or hash map, you know, that imply hash tables, they're never fully, fully flat in the same way that, you know, a real vector or a real vectors a c++ vector is right, right? <laughs> what's a real vector is a different topic um, there is some additional level of indirection to support the magic that's going on there is some additional level of indirection yeah but um i mean, I mean that i talk about this more in the talks and whatnot uh It's surprisingly low amount of indirection, actually, uh, that you require. Like, um, for example, uh, this library of immutable data structures that I built provides a type called immutable vector, right? That tries to have similar uh, performance properties to a standard vector, um, but in this immutable sense. And iterating over it is just 1.5, like the overhead is, you know, 1.5 over iterating over a standard vector. Uh, which is really low considering that basically iterating over a standard vector has, like, it's almost like for free, right? Um, yeah, right. So, and, th- and this is because these data structures in particular, uh, or the, the data structures that I chose to implement to support these containers, uh, they they try to be cache efficient and adapted to the modern processors, right? Which is something that it's true. Sometimes you don't find in some of the functional programming Community, right? Like it's uh, a lot of it tends to be if you look at the literature in general, often you find things based on small nodes and linked lists and whatnot, which C developers, you know, cringe as soon as they see this. Um, But, you know, the science of persistent and immutable data structures has evolved, and now you have uh, quite powerful data structures which provide very interesting trade offs uh, in this regard. So, how have you packaged
1: this? Is this something that someone would find in Boost? Is it something that someone doing message passing, using ASIO or the networking TS could just use as part of what they're working on? Uh, I guess you, you don't have any locks in it, right? So
2: yeah. It, yeah. So this is a open source library. Uh, it's not integrated in Boost or any you know big package, uh, but it's on GitHub under my name slash uh, email. That's the name of the library and uh it's under the boost license so it's very you know a very liberal license that anybody could could use and i know like a few people that are using it in, at companies already so so it's ready for production yeah i'd say so yeah i think i mean the api i would like to work more on it you know like add more containers add more stuff but finding the time is always hard of course i'd be happy also to find you know more commercial sponsors that uh would like to support some of this work but i think that the data structures that are already provided they're solid uh, they're as i said used in production and i try to be quite responsive especially with back reports if something comes up Yeah, you
1: know. and this was the subject of one of your cbpcon talks right
2: yeah that was like two years ago uh i, I did a talk precisely on that topic Um, and last year I tried to continue the story a little bit, right? Because for me, this was basically the starting point actually of this, uh, kind of a story of trying to bring more and more value semantics to C++. Um, so last year I did another talk, which was on the one hand, a little bit like a prequel uh, to actually the immutable data structures talk, because it was, um, you know, talking about value semantics in general, trying to be a, a bit more philosophical and conceptual about it. Um, But then it also talks about uh, some of the, uh, basically, designs that are being used for interactive software in the web world, uh, like Redux and the Flux architecture, unidirectional data flow architecture is often called these days, Um, which, as I say, I I think it's becoming quite popular in the web and even under, like, for some app development. Uh, But I think it hasn't really been heard much in the C++ world, so I'm trying to to bring this uh, here. Yeah. But it, yeah, it's not language specific. It's more of a design approach. Completely, yeah. And actually, in, in a way, C++ is a very good language for this kind of thing because C++, um, you know, it has value semantics as a core part of the language, right? Like if you're doing these things in Java, yeah, right. uh, doing value stuff in Java is hard because the language goes a little bit against you as soon as, you know, uh, like there's no way to specify value semantics at an object level or at a class level. Uh, they have something in in, in Java nine, but it's still you know I think there there's still some quirks to it and in, and in c plus plus I think we have like very nice tools for for doing this. Uh, so yeah, I think we we should be doing more more of this so
1: um, you also did a talk on transducers. Was that before the yeah, that was in 2015. Yeah, EMU yeah. library when yeah. So what 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 are
2: transducers? So transducers are also an abstraction that comes from closure actually, which has uh, the mutable data structures I implemented also come from closure. It's been a very in- inspiring language for me, um, and they are an abstraction for describing transformations over sequential processes which is something that sounds very abstract Um, and to simplify try to put it in one sentence it's like a generalized version of the range algorithms right like map filter and whatnot um, that are independent of the notion of range so you can actually apply them to a range if you want to but you can apply it to other things that somehow behave sequentially, and most interestingly, to things that are push-based. So you can apply it to, let's say, uh, GUI events, or you can apply it to uh, network packages. You know, to things sequences that happen over time, as opposed to sequences that are already stored in memory somehow. Um, yeah, and yeah, that comes from closure. Um, and yeah that that's from the time when i thought that selling functional, uh, functional programming to c++ developers was interesting which uh now uh as i said i, I try to stay a little bit away from it uh, and focus more on this topic <laughs> of uh of value based design
1: <laughs> that so what you're saying i mean yeah. um uh, So this was one of the things when I read, Mm. which I haven't finished yet, but I'm enjoying very much Yvonne's book on functional programming. Um, The first part of it, as I'm reading it, it's like, well, this is just good programming. Mm. This is just good value semantic programming, right? There's nothing, you know, then you start getting into function composition and stuff like that. and You say, okay, this is kind of weird. But the basic ideas are just writing really good code. Mm. At least that's what it looks like to me.
2: Yeah,
1: and um, and good value semantic code, yeah. right? And so that's what you're. At least I think of this. It, it it could be that you start talking about functional programming and C people say, well, this is not a functional programming language, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna listen. But the truth is, there's so much that there's so much of a discipline there that if you follow this discipline of of minimizing state and minimizing uh, mutability and all these kinds of things, even if you can't get to the hundred percent mark. There's just at, at every level where you reduce that, you find you have code that's easier to reason about.
2: Yeah, c- completely. And I think uh, like C++ allows us to take some of the functional programming principles, um, but apply it in an idiosyncratic way, right? So uh, idiosyncratic or idiomatic in a different way, basically, that somehow reconciles often uh, procedural programming and functional programming. Uh because in C++, yeah, thanks to value types, you can have write a pure function in a procedural way, right? Uh Like you can have, you know, I take a struct by value, return a new one by value mm-hmm. in the body of it, and just messing with the attributes and assigning to them, and I have a for loop and a counter. I, I can do, you know, the imperative stuff. Mm-hmm. But the signature of my function is still... uh, uh a pure function. Now, is this functional programming? I don't know, right? Uh, it's uh, from the point of view of the API, it is. Shh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> right? uh, yeah, I, I don't even want to know, right? But yeah, I think it's also like, I mean, I love functional programming, right? <laughs> like, Obviously, but um, yeah, the reason I try to stay away from it is also a, a point of focus, right? I, I think like when uh, when people talk about functional programming... Uh, the first focus is, well, first, because of the name, it's programming, right? It's the implementation. And I think a lot of the value from functional programming comes not at the implementation level. It comes actually at the design and architecture level because that's where you have many components, many pieces, and that's where having basically mathematical rules and, you know, actually limitations, like you cannot mutate, uh, actually become important, right? When you have, like, not so many pieces because it's a detail, it's an implementation, then, you know... Use whatever you want. Then uh, the other thing is that I think when we talk about functional programming, the first thing people think about is tools for abstraction and composition, right? Uh, and this uh, is basically means higher order functions and then categorical constructions like monads and all this stuff, Uh which is kind of scary for a lot of oh, people. Oh, we definitely
1: can't use that word. We, we don't use that word on this show. That's, we all have to go run through <laughs> yeah, these So we'll, we'll have to edit that out, Phil, right? You're going to
2: edit
0: that out in post. Yeah. It. Two strikes and you're out. Oops.
2: Uh, yeah, the, the M word. Right? So the, the burrito, what's it like? <laughs> um, but, but
1: you're saying, but you're saying it's, it's, it's as much about design, or maybe maybe the, the real value is in the design level rather than worrying about uh, uh, you know, functions that take functions and all this kind of stuff, but instead just thinking about at, at the design level.
2: Exactly, right? So it's like, um, okay, let's, I mean, that part is, is fantastic, right? And it really helps you, makes your life easier as a developer. Um, but yeah, when you're designing the system, let's think about our value types. Let's try to design our data model of an application, right? If you have, like, interactive software that's big enough, you want to have a data model. Can this data model be a value type? I have business logic. Well, can this business logic be implemented as pure functions, right? And for that, I don't need anything fancy. I don't need templates. I don't need, you know, high-order functions. I just need functions that take the value and return by value. It's like C++, 98, you know? Uh, you can do all this stuff with the things that you learn in an uh, introduction to c plus course um, uh, it's just about you know yeah leveraging this and 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 working around the design constraints that you're imposing yourself of course when you're when you're taking this value based uh, approach and and of course, you hit walls often right for me actually the first wall was you know the deep copying issue and that's why I met I made a, a mutable data structure project, right? Like, um, and, and there are other walls you, you can hit, uh, but yeah, I think like it's interesting to see like how far can I push it. You know, like having simple value types and having you know simple functions and, and breaking out of I don't know maybe the traditional more graph of mutable objects way of looking at software design.
1: And, and the payoff being easier to read about the code, more easily adaptable as concurrency?
2: Yeah, of course. That's clearly one advantage. It's uh that it's much easier to adapt your code to be concurrent. Um it's uh great for testability as well. Um it's very nice for decoupling certain kinds of things, certain kinds of features are very easy to implement. Like undo is one of the canonical like examples of a feature that is very hard to, to implement in, in a mutable world, but that it becomes almost trivial in, in a value based world. Um, so, so yeah, it's, I think it really helps uh, with quite a bunch of otherwise complicated, complicated
1: problems seems like your uh, immutable data structure just invites the ability to roll back, right? You can do undos on that very easily. Exactly,
2: right? Because you can just keep around the old version. Uh, in, and if you want to undo, well, you just set the state to whatever it was before of the whole thing, right? Instead of uh, having to implement like, you know, in the command pattern that they teach you in the... Uh, design patterns book from the Gang of Four, uh, you have to implement basically your business logic twice, one in one direction, one in the other direction, and store it as an object somewhere. Uh, Here, just keep a history of states and just roll back to the previous state. Now, you don't even need an immutable data structure for that, actually. If you're also applying your application logic as pure functions, uh, you can also store maybe a snapshot, but not a snapshot for every single state, just one from time to time, and then store the events that happen. And since your functions are now uh, deterministic, you can also just go back in time to your last snapshot and replay the actions until the present, uh, which of course then becomes O N to the amount of things that happened between the snapshot and now. But, you know, it becomes very playful in this sense, you know, uh, depending on on, on the trade-offs, you can do one thing or the other, combine them, actually. Um, But, yeah. Yeah, I think, like, a lot of this also comes from a a trend, maybe, of trying to to break out of or beyond object-oriented programming. And I find also quite refreshing in the C++ community, this uh, data-oriented design. Uh, movement um which in many ways it promotes a lot of the things we also talk about when we talk about value-oriented design uh i think they just come from a very different community and they have a different focus like they they focus on different trade-offs right where they come from the game gaming world and they focus on performance uh beyond almost anything else Um, But a lot of the conclusions they reach end up being quite similar, actually, when it comes to designing data types, you know, having, designing the data first, uh, being explicit about your data and their relationships, being explicit about identity to be able to decouple decouple data layout from, uh, entity layout. Um, yeah, so, uh... If you're excited about data-oriented design, I think that has become like quite hyped in the C++ uh, world. Uh, I think value-oriented design maybe p- provides you like a- another way to look at um, a similar way to go beyond object-oriented programming.
1: So um, one of the things that you also talked about was unidirectional data flow architecture. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Does that mean you can't do undos? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, data flows just in one direction, right? Um, which uh, is a little bit different from how you normally uh, design, um, design interactive software, where traditionally you have a basically mutation-based interpretation of the MVC pattern, the model view controller pattern, uh, where you have... The model, the controllers, and the views, and uh, the view, let's say, knows about the model because it has to draw it. But then the model is mutable, so it also has to have callbacks pointing at the view back. And you know, as soon as you modify something, you have the callbacks coming in, so everything keeps updated. And if you do it in a disciplined way, uh, you know this. C- kind of works. Like MVC is great in many ways, but it has quite some problems when it comes to composing things beyond what we mentioned before about concurrency and whatnot, right? Um, The traditional example is that, well, if as soon as you modify a property in the model, it notifies via callback, then I cannot use modifications of this property as part of a bigger compound operation because then I'm going to see Invalid like intermediate state in the in the UI, right? Um, so okay, that was like the MVC with the unidirectional data flow. Uh, basically, what you try to do is say, I'm gonna have a similar distinction, but I'm gonna have uh, something I'm gonna call actions, which is a representation of what happens in the world, uh, some event uh, that it can even be already like a business logic kind of operation, right? Like, I don't know, insert character in a text editor. Um, Then you have the model, which is a value. And then when an action comes, you evaluate an update function, but the flow goes in only one direction. So the update function doesn't modify the model in place. It returns a new version of the model, right? And once you have this new version of the model, then you evaluate some view function, which just yes, renders the UI, or maybe ideally if you have something like React returns a value representing the UI that then is dispatched to something that actually does the rendering, some mechanism here. You know? um, so in these steps, things go just in one direction, right? Like you get the action which triggers an update in the model which returns a new value, which returns a new view state. Um, in, and yeah, this solves a lot of these complications, actually, of um, basically composing models, and, and of course also adding concurrency and whatnot. Because once you do this, then your model ends up being you know value based and immutable, and your update logic end, ends up being like pure functions. So yeah.
1: So this is a a a new world of trying to design user user interfaces that are that are not based on object oriented programming and. Uh, and using kind of the React model. And- uh, yeah, basically, yeah.
2: Actually, so um, a lot of this comes from um, a library uh, from JavaScript that is called um, Redux uh, that is very often used combined with React, um, even though you don't actually need to use React to use this library. Um, there is also a programming language called Elm, uh, which is basically like, a, you could say like a simplified Haskell, Uh, for doing HTML applications. Uh, And this language is very interesting because it basically embeds this design as the core of the, the language. Like in this language, you don't have a main procedure. As, as your entry point. You have this update function, you have your model and your actions, and you define this and the runtime combines this for you uh, to get your interactive application running. And, and actually, I mean, when you look at it, it's, it's so simple that it, it looks almost like a little bit stupid <laughs> when you look at it. I think that the, the only reason that has stopped people from doing things this way uh, until now is that, well, if whenever you do an update, you return a completely new version of the world, this is going to be very expensive. You're copying everything, right? Um, Right. But as we've seen uh, with immutable data structures and all this stuff, this actually doesn't have to be the case. Um, So this is, again, why basically the data structure work was, the first step for everything that came afterwards, uh, uh, in this value based story or whatever, maybe to introduce like the, the next, uh, topic that I would like to talk about at, at conferences, which is, uh, um, trying to reconcile actually object oriented programming and, and, and this more value based approach. Um, because, of course, this unidirectional data flow architecture, whatever, it's very nice, um, but it's very hard to implement if you're not starting from scratch, which is a luxury that almost no C++ developer has. Like, a lot of the the important C++ projects are, well, legacy, whatever that means, which just means, you know, old but very useful software. So, um we have to to deal with these constraints and and it will be nice, and I think there are some ways we can maybe try to reconcile the two
1: yeah, yeah this is one of the things that that I see a lot there's There's something on the order of a decade of time difference between the topics that people are proposing to conferences, which is, of course, something I'm well aware of, everybody is talking about. Some people are talking about already uh, things they want to do for 23. In fact, there's a lot of, you know, one of the things that we've talked a lot about on this show is static exceptions. And I'm all excited about that. And it's certainly not going to be in 20. So we're talking about that at 23. And in fact, some some parts of static exceptions, we might not see until after 23. So we're very far-sighted, And this is what we're talking about conferences. This is what gets me excited. Well, you Start talking about static exceptions. Everybody knows you get me excited on this show. Yeah. So, um, no exception, but on the other hand, when I go out to training, which is, you know, how I make my money, yeah. um, I talk to people, teams often, it kills me every time I ask this, but at the end of, at the beginning of every class, I say, how many of you have heard of C++ now or CPPCon?" And when I see like four hands go up out of 20, I, I take a minute and just cry, <laughs> um, So an awful lot of people, they're not at the cutting edge. They don't really know what working group 21 means. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so so when you start talking to them about, you know, some of these concepts, that's, they're just not, that's not where their head is. And they're very much in the object-oriented world. Now, there might be some of them even that think there is a better way and know a little bit about you know, modern C++ design and, and, you know, when was that written? That was written back in, you know, mid-2000s, I think, something like that, you know. Um, I think it was 2000. What? 2000? Yeah. Two years after the standard. Um, yeah, so that that's, uh, you know, that, that there are people who are aware of this, but even those people are often locked in a legacy application where yeah. you don't just throw away that object framework which which for good or evil is doing an awful lot of work for you and producing an awful lot of value to real world users doing real world work right, That's right. um and so we don't just throw that away yeah. now we got to figure out how do we how do we make sense of you know how, how do we capture people's ideas about what you're calling uh, value semantics yeah. or or functional programming or whatever we want to call it, you know, newer ways of thinking about things which rely less on runtime and perhaps rely less on mutability and mm-hmm. state and the, have a lot of advantages about reasoning about code. That's one issue. But the other issue is once people have gotten that, then you got to think, OK, now how do you use any of that in a world where every class we have has a virtual destructor and virtual functions, yeah. right? So um, <laughs> that's and that's one of the things that i that i have been struggling with a lot lately in fact that's why um my submission to meeting c++ is actually a talk on object oriented programming and it's uh, it's like I, I i don't know how it can possibly be accepted because you know it's like <laughs> so you know 1990s to talk about object oriented programming But my feeling is there's a lot of people who are doing this, and we've stopped talking about Mm. how to do that properly and how to do it well. Because most of the people at conferences, they're not all as advanced as you are, but a lot of them, you know, they're not talking about object-oriented programming. They are talking about value semantics. They're talking about um, constexpr, what can be done at compile time, all these kinds of cool things. And I just think that there's a lot of things that we learned in the 90s and the 2000s that are not being talked about by anyone because nobody's recommending books that are that old and nobody's talking about those things so if you are an object-oriented programmer today and trying to do the best job of object-oriented programming you can do where's your guidance so that's why i wanted to do this talk but
2: it's i don't know if I don't know if I can convince <laughs> the to let me do it. <laughs> well, <laughs> because- I, I, I agree. I think it's a very important topic, actually, right? Like it goes, I, I agree with you also in this sense that um, it's true that, especially at conferences, that people want to talk about the cutting edge in techniques, right? Like the, the craziest, like, template trick you could ever dream of. Um, which, which is right. They should. Yeah, yeah. of course. That's where you should do it.
1: Absolutely. That's where it should be exactly. done. Exactly. It's super
2: fun. And we're pushing the edge of the language itself. And that's why we go there to mesmerize ourselves. Right. Right. But, uh, it's true. Like, I think at, at C++ on C, like I made this joke in the, in, in the introduction to the talk where, that, where I said, you know, my talk is going to be one hour and a half of high quality uh, C++ without the template keyword. Because it's true, in my whole like, one <laughs> hour and a half talk about value semantics, there was no template keyword and everybody laughed. But um, but it's true, like I think we, we've lost a little bit contact with, you know, the basic tools and how to apply them to design. Like, we don't talk anymore that much about uh concrete you know designs and even like mvc and object-oriented and uh architecture and and yeah well there there are some refreshing as i said some refreshing trends with the data-oriented design uh, and but it's true that I, i'm very happy also to have the conversation alive about how to do proper object-oriented programming And, and yeah, this maybe now trying to talk more about value-oriented design is just contributing to this conversation of, you know, what are the design paradigms that C++ supports and, and how can we reconcile the different paradigms? Because, yeah, it's a language where in the end supports multiple paradigms and projects that last 20, 30, 40 years or more. Uh, they end up having lots of these paradigms. and sometimes the architecture is a little bit of a Frankenstein. sometimes actually these multiple paradigms actually uh, complement each other for for the good. Um, so so let's try to figure how how these play with each other right And, and often like I, I was saying before yeah like the, like one of the limitations to apply value semantics is sometimes, legacy code or legacy projects, but even if if you're not using legacy projects, just if you want to use like a nice UI framework, like let's say QT, right? Uh, and some people say, well, I'm going to grab my own UI framework and then they spend, you know, a few years working on a UI framework instead of their project because it's a daunting task, especially if you want to support you know, uh, accessibility and all, and font rendering and whatnot. Anyways, let's not get started on that. Let's say you want to actually use QT and QT has, you know, it was written in the 90s. It has like a Java-style object-oriented approach. Uh, and let's say you want to actually use value semantics for your data model because you saw this cool talk about value semantics or whatnot. Um, what do we do now, right? You, you have to have an answer to that part of the story instead of, you know, just having these uh, toys where everything is, uh, you know, nice because you're doing it from scratch with uh, whatever tools you could Come up with so this is this is where I'm trying to work on uh, now more, um, which also comes from my experience. I work as a consultant as well, right? And so, so a lot of my clients in the end come to me because they they saw what uh, what's, what's uh, what I talk about at conferences, and, and then we try together to to see how to apply this in practice. Uh, and, and this basically means resolving these questions about yeah dealing with legacy code, how to Incrementally apply value semantics in a code base that doesn't, uh, how to interface between a value based module and an object oriented module, and this kind of stuff.
1: Right, because if you say to a client or really to anyone, okay, the way to do this is to throw out everything you have now, (laughs) that's probably the last word you're going to get out before they close the door or hang (laughs) up the phone, right? That's not, that's a non starter. Yeah. Right. So we figure out how to. Um, how to make this transition is, is, is really key. In fact, you know, I, I, in my talk on exception-safe coding, one of the really, probably the most important thing in the whole talk is in the last few minutes when I say, okay, this is the model for how you go from a code base that, that isn't exception-safe, a code base that doesn't have, the, where the assumption is that nothing ever throws, so I don't have to worry about it. And now we want to take advantage of some of the power of exceptions. How do you integrate that in? How do you make that work? And there is a way of doing this, which has been proven on a number of very large, you know, multi-million line code bases. Um, there's There's a methodology for doing it. But without being able to explain that to people, then you can spend a few hours talking about exception safe code only to have them nod and say, yeah, it really, looks really good in your (laughs) world, but in my world, that's going to be dangerous. And without, you know, this is the transition story. And so I think we need to do the same thing. If you're going to, if you're going to train, change people around from thinking in terms of, of base classes and object oriented framework, and instead think in terms of types and value semantics, then you, you gotta give them a story to, this is how you get from here to here. This is how it can be integrated. And I, I think one of the things that's, that's challenging about that is that, that part of the power of of paradigms in general is we can make the assumption that all our code does this because that's what our paradigm is. Mm, yeah. And that's when you mix paradigms, that gets really hard to do because you say, well, I'm going to make the assumption that, all. oh no, the code doesn't because all the code done in this paradigm doesn't have that. Yeah. And so you have to think about how how to integrate these things. And it's, it's not trivial, but if you can make it work, you can give people a path out of a legacy situation into a better design without requiring that they throw it away and start over from scratch. If you can pull that off, if you can show them the transition solution or the hybrid solution um, and let them, uh, let, let them see an integration. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so in this case, actually, um, uh, it's interesting because what I've been uh, working on lately is uh, also like library tools that help with this, right? Um, uh, Because uh, in the question particularly of integrating um, object-oriented programming and value semantics, um, there is actually a tension where, you know, when people say, sometimes they prefer object-oriented programming, they are right about one thing that object-oriented programming gives you that it's very good at, um, which is a sense of modularity, actually. That sometimes you lose a little bit when you move to a functional world to gain composability. And What do I mean by this? I mean that um, in in an object oriented world, I can have uh, let's say I don't know the typical example where you're making like a car, right? And the car has an engine, and I can have a engine view, right? That has a reference to the engine, and it doesn't have to know that the engine is part of a car to represent the engine, right? uh so this is kind of a sense of modularity right like this view is concerned just with the with the engine because it has a pointer to it now this modularity has some flaws because actually the engine can change in ways that you don't expect because there are other people having references to it Uh, but at least in some sense at least from a in a sense of physical coupling let's say Right? Uh, there is uh, this sense of modularity. If you move to a value world, right, and you say, well, if I want to change the engine uh, because, I don't know, I want to speed up, then I get a new engine. Okay, great. Well, the engine is part of a car. Well, now I need to also get a new car if I want to change the engine, right? <laughs> so... So this view that right, right 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 let's say you have the engine view now, if it wants to change the engine, it needs to also have to create a changed car with a new engine, and maybe this is getting a little bit confusing but um but you know, there are these challenges that that you face uh when when trying to to, to assemble things, right? Uh, and, and it's because this tension, right? Like, it was very easy to compose right. things to make the engine part of a car, but now it's hard to regain this modularity, basically caring about the engine without caring about the car.
1: I don't think it's a coincidence that the explosion of hype about object-oriented programming and the explosion of GUIs happened about the same time, yeah. right? I mean, it was it was... The 80s and 90s, when uh, the Mac and Windows and Top View and all these other products were trying to introduce, you know, object-oriented programming, or excuse me, uh, GUIs yeah. to to the computing world. And they were all implemented as, or most of them were implemented with some kind of object-oriented programming model. I happen to think that object-oriented programming yeah. handles GUIs pretty well. It, it's a pretty good fit. Yeah. Um, now I've had long discussions with Sean Parent, whose wisdom in this area I certainly bow to, um, and he and he thinks that it's still better to use generic programming to do a UI. Mm. But I do think it's an area where uh, where where object-oriented programming tends to work pretty well,
0: yeah.
1: and uh, I think that the it was clearly overhyped. Mm. It, it didn't solve all of our code reusable problems that we wanted it to, yeah. but it solves that particular problem pretty well. It's a pretty good match.
2: Yeah.
1: I think, <laughs> and believe me, I spent years doing this, right? I was a Mac programmer. I know a little bit about implementing UIs in object-oriented programming. Yeah, for sure. It's a pretty good match for the paradigm. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: and um, I'm always anxious to talk to Sean about, how, well, how would you do this then? and uh, And, you know, so interestingly, he, he comes up with some kind of interesting type erasure solution. It's like, oh, that is kind of cool.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, actually, I mean, I think so. I, I was proposing the problem. Of course, I think there is a solution to that problem. And um, and I think probably we don't have enough time to really go in, into it right now. As I said, I will be talking about that at conferences probably next year. Uh, so there will be more chances to, to go into, into that. But yeah, I still do think that the value-based approach and, uh, and basically not so object-oriented approaches are actually good for UI as well. And the, one of the big proofs is React and the, and the great success of React, which really has completely changed how people do UIs nowadays, because most of the UIs now actually are in the web. Um, but uh, I have a lot of respect also for all the innovations that happen in the object-oriented programming world uh, to support UIs, and I agree with you, right? With that, there was uh, basically uh, the MVC uh, design and architecture came from Smalltalk, and it's very radical object-oriented approach uh, in this very kind of disciplined and and almost, yeah, like radical and utopian way of doing object-oriented programming, I think changed, uh, like it broadened people's perspectives, right? And it, it brought a lot of this, you know, modularization and, and it brought a lot a lot of things to, to good things to the world of programming. But I think it's good now that now we're having a conversation to, Absolutely. to say, well, uh, now that we also, I mean, the thing is also, it's very easy to criticize your ancestors' from the perspective of now, it's true that also simply the world of computing is a different world now because, you know, Moore's law is not valid anymore. And now computers are working horizontally. So maybe, you know, concurrency is much more important than it was, you know, 30 years ago where even the operating system was single user. So...
1: Well, and also the compilers of that time were not up to... uh, you know the template things that we throw at it now, um, you can laugh at it, but you know I think at one point the standard had this section where it kind of suggested minimal limits to things you know the uh, um you know theoretically your compiler can say there's a limit to how many characters you can put in a variable name yeah. right so what is that well nobody cares cuz the, the practical limit of that is huge but i think there was a proposal once that you should be able to do 17 levels of templates deep which at the time was just astounding and and if you ever tried to do it your compiler just turned into molasses right <laughs> yeah. but Today, if you couldn't handle seventeen levels of templates, we would be we would be in a lot of trouble really quick. Yeah. There's a lot of people who are doing things way more complicated than that, but and today's compilers have to be able to handle that. So that's I think, you know, we are moving things from runtime to compile time, but that's not free. Yeah, it's it's great for users, but it's uh, but it's only possible because we have uh, compiler technology that just didn't exist in the '90s. And, and, you know, is beyond what anybody thought of in the 90s. And so, yeah, I, I think it's like you say, it's easy to it's easy to poke fun at uh, or, or find fault with the limitations of previous generations work of our ancestors. But they were doing miraculous things with what they had. And um, and I think that part of part of our improving on what they've done is simply exploiting things that they didn't have yeah. that they couldn't do. I mean, they just didn't have any way of doing it. And in some things, I think also, you know, we we have better parsers, better understanding, and, and you know, that, that there's things that we've just learned. But also, part of it is you know, change in hardware, change in networking, causes us to think about problems in different ways than they ever did. And um, and of course, we learn from their mistakes. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I I agree very much, and this is why I also like uh, I I also try to avoid uh, moral judgments about code. You know, when you said before, like is value semantic just good code? I don't know because I don't know what good code is. You know, like maybe good code is code that helps uh, old people cross the street or something. I don't know. <laughs> 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 but uh, well, but what yeah. I mean by what
1: what I mean by that good code is just that um it's 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 easier to test it's uh easier to reason about yeah, yeah. right. The, any paradigm of, any paradigm you can have code where you say i look at this code i know what it's supposed to do i can see how i would test it yeah. um it doesn't it doesn't seem to have uh it follows scott myers universal privilege, universal um principle of design which is that it's easy to use correctly and difficult to use incorrectly right yeah. that's just good code and it doesn't matter what kind of paradigm you use now some paradigms just naturally do that better than others yeah. i think
2: yeah um, I, I just think it's very important for us to to know what what do we mean by good right because this definition of good changes over time that that's what i was getting to right like like now we can say oh this code that someone wrote 20 years ago is bad well It's not bad. It's just that your definition of good has changed because your constraints are different. And, and, you know, there is code that is good for, it's easy to change. There is code that is easy, that is performant. There is code that is easy to read. There is code that is easy to write. You know, there is code that is easy to test. There are all these things Uh, all these characteristics and it's very hard to satisfy all of them at at the same time, actually. Right. And this is, you know, when you go to talks, some people will focus on some aspect and poke at all the things that all the people do wrong. But in the end, you know, we're all smart people trying to do our best Uh, and, and we often just have different constraints. So, so yeah, let's talk more also about, um, yeah, well, what constraints, what trade-offs are, are we making when writing the software? Which is basically what we do by designing, right? This goes back to the discussion about talking more about design. Design is just choosing constraints. And once you choose certain constraints, then you... Right. You know, it's like you put some dots in the map and then you can do a drawing and and everything fits. Uh, but choosing the right constraints and choosing the right trade-offs is very hard. And it's, it's a business decision. It's an engineering decision in the whole... What, whatever it means in its greater sense, that's that's the whole thing,
0: <clears throat> right? Absolutely. There's there's a few things that I wanted to to bring up, but we're, we're getting a bit <laughs> short of time, and uh, we didn't really go through our news section. There were there are a couple of items that oh we didn't did I didn't wanted we wanted to bring up there as well, uh, and actually one of them there is a a link back to all of this, which is that there's a new version of Catch Two out, uh, version two point nine point zero. And the big news there is that it actually includes the the uh micro benchmarking framework has been merged in. Uh, and you might wonder what that's got to do with anything we've been talking about. The reason it's relevant is I, I did a talk a couple of years ago at uh, C++ Now on persistent hash array map trees. It's a particular type of persistent data structure.
1: Was this just to get as many buzzwords in one <laughs> sentence as possible? Was it... <laughs>
0: that's just in one name yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. you have to watch the talk to see exactly what that's about it's actually really fascinating um and in that talk i used nonius as my micro benchmarking framework specifically uh so so that was fun and in the audience was uh Rompay, um and we chatted afterwards and uh by, before the end of the year he'd actually included a persistent hash array map tree in his immer framework so <laughs> so you see everything's connected
1: yeah. So
0: um uh, is the idea of this
1: micro benchmarking so that you know if you have broken performance was that the idea?
0: Yeah, obviously you have to be careful with um any, well, any sort of benchmarking but particularly the micro benchmarking. Uh it can really mislead you if um you know it's, it's often not testing what you think it is. Yeah. Uh, but it can be good as a guide for for certain things. Um so yeah, it's for just testing whether a a particular operation which might complete extremely quickly is actually faster than some other comparable very fast operation Uh, and in my case it was uh, like adding items to a an associative uh, data structure for example and and now the different types of data structures have different performance characteristics so even just like seeing the 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 shape of that as you add more more items how that changes over time that, that can be relevant even if the actual absolute figures aren't necessarily accurate. All right.
2: Do we the, the, this is funny because actually the sorry the the circle closes around Non use uh, because I also <laughs> used non-use as the benchmarking yes. library for the immutable data structure library that I did. Uh, and I ended up actually com- um, contributing a couple of patches to to their HTML report generator uh, as part of you know that Usage and I can very much recommend this library. It's actually, I'm very happy that it's included as part of Catch. Uh, they play great together yeah, because it's nice also to yeah include some kind of benchmarking uh, benchmarking monitoring as part of your CI pipeline and testing pipeline somehow.
0: Uh, absolutely, and uh, I should say I, I can take no credit for this at all because uh, I didn't didn't touch the the PRs. That was all handled by other people, particularly um, uh, Martin as ever overseeing that. So um, big thanks to him again. So I don't even know how it's come out, but um, <laughs> it's in the latest release. So I've got to play with it myself. Uh, but I did start adding a micro benchmarking framework to catch uh, a year or so ago before um, the author of uh, Nuneus actually approached me and we, we, we talked about including it. And I wanted to get that in there because it, it, well, the face of it, it seems like they're completely different things. Micro benchmarking and unit testing, um, they are different things. And they did hesitate to, to do it. But in many ways, they, they just run the same sort of way. Uh, and the, the same sort of approaches you might want to use uh, apply um, in both forms of, uh, of testing. So having a single place that you could you could do that, actually keep the code together, did actually make a lot of sense in the end.
1: So I didn't quite... I think there was a little glitch and I didn't quite hear what you were saying when you were talking about how this works. Are you saying you uh, you you write your... Your test, so that you do something with your code and then you do something with some alternative, and that way you it's isolating essentially the hardware we could run this on a faster machine or a slower machine because all you're really testing is not does it perform in so many you know in so many seconds, but you're instead saying does it does this method perform at least as fast as this method is that is that what we're saying
0: uh that is one one use yeah thats that's what I've tended to use it for obviously you can compare it against. Previous versions of the same algorithm, that sort of thing. But I think you know, comparing the, the the relative performance characteristics of multiple solutions rather than just the absolute metrics is is important. Even then, it can lead you astray because obviously how you run something in isolation can differ in how it runs on the machine right. compared to when you're running it in the context of a code and you get different types of cache warm-ups and so on. Right. Um, so take it all with a pinch of salt, but... And you also may
1: have a situation where you've you've made the choice to slow something down because you've made it easier for the caller to avoid doing something even more expensive.
0: Right. right? Uh, and, and you might just want to measure what the cost of that is as well. So that, that can also be useful. So in the, the case of um, uh, the, the talk that I mentioned about the persistent hash array map tree, I wanted to see how the performance of this uh, persistent data structure for Storing associated data compared to just using um std map and std unordered map, std set, the the, the standard containers. They, again, you know, a particular implementation of those, because they also vary, um, to, to make sure you weren't giving up too much. And in fact, they they outperform them in, in most cases.
1: So we should probably touch on anything else we need to touch on because we're getting low on time here. Um I think negative two minutes. Yeah, that's right. I wanted to announce that C now, the, the videos are up. Um, some, some really great content there. Um, I really don't know. I think the two that that people are most looking forward to, and I'm not even sure if those two are up, but a, a number of people have, have remarked on Hannah's talk because, uh, and, and in fact, her slides are available and her slides actually include this magic where you can literally, hmm. in the slide, you can type in your regular expression and watch, it, watch the state machine being, being created on the slide. Yeah. Uh, that's just too amazing. Oh, that is amazing. And then the other one is... Uh, uh, Connor's talk, which won all the awards, uh, so people are looking forward to that. Um, we let's see, uh, the Italian C plus plus and the Paris C plus have both uh, are both over now. So I guess we're still waiting for videos on that. I saw a lot of tweets come out while Andre was speaking uh, his keynote at the Italian one. Got a lot of people interested. Um, CPPCon. We're right in the in the situation where we've done most of the rating of sessions. And now we're figuring out which ones are actually going to be part of the program. Uh, I think meeting C++, the, they're also in the review process. So if you are a previous attendee, I think you get to vote. So you can do reviews. Um, is there other news? Oh, we also have this announcement from Robert Ramey of this incredibly controversial uh, blog post that he's writing. <laughs> I'm, I wish
0: we had time to talk about it, but I guess we're not going to be able to talk about it. i just... Um, Everybody will just have to stay tuned for that. I would say we should get him back on the show, but uh, we should leave him some time to actually write this blog post.
1: Well, yeah. We'll, yeah, Robert, get that post written so we can have you back on. Anyway, um, until then, we will wish everyone safe coding. Safe coding.
2: Safe coding.